Okay. Can you, is this on? Okay. All right, we are here. We're here on a beautiful Columbus Day, but we're studying the Bible. And uh, uh, just uh, we ran out of these last week, my uh, trip to Israel, the brochures on the trip to Israel next June. So if you didn't get one, you were looking for one, you don't have one, there's uh, quite a few on the table back here where you pay, okay? So if you want a, a brochure on the trip to Israel, get that on, you know, whenever you want to on your way out or whenever. Uh, the cowboy game was so wonderful yesterday <laughs> that I thought the thing to do, yeah, hook them horns, he says. <laughs> I thought the thing to do, though, after the cowboy game was for a movie clip today to have the actual press conference of the New England Patriots after the football game yesterday. So, with your permission, the actual press conference of New England. It's too much. I was thinking that kind of goes along with the past lessons, you know. Uh, in Romans 1 through 3, uh, Paul has taken upon himself to prove that everybody needs Jesus. And why? Because everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is a sinner. And so Paul went through the three kinds of people basically in the world. One is the pagan idolater in chapter 1. Well, that's clear. That's obvious. And then chapter 2 are the people that are more like us, the good people, the moralists, people who are considered to be really good people. And he proved how they also uh, need Christ. And then, of course, the really religious people. So here's a guy... The whole world looked up as a saint. This guy's a saint. He could never do anything wrong, right? And uh, he's just like everybody else. He needs Jesus, just like Paul says. So today we are in Romans chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 5. I saw a great story. Uh, I know you've heard, heard of this poem and probably the author, but in 1624, uh, this great author named John Donne, he was in uh, London, England, and he was extremely sick, and he was in his deathbed at the hospital, and that was during the days in 1624, and they had the Black Plague, and they had typhus running you know, rampant, people were dying right and left, so he's laying in the hospital, and uh, whenever somebody would die, they would ring the big bells on the church there. Bong, bong, bong. And the people would come get the bodies and they'd carry them off in the car. So he's laying in there in the, in the uh, bed and about every 10 minutes the bell goes off. And he goes, God, I hope that's not me, you know. <laughs> and uh, as he's thinking about those bells going off and how sick he is and that he might die, he writes this poem. No man is an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is less. Even so, any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind and therefore never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. God, that's, that's strong, isn't it? Never sin to ask who it, it tells for thee. You may not be the guy that dies at that point, but what he's saying is 
we all have that in common, that we're flesh and blood, physically, physically going to die. We're all related, related because we have the same fate. And the reality of death diminishes us, it diminishes us all. We're all diminished by death. In the same way, the life that God is offering us in Christ improves us all. It lifts us all up. It gives us all hope. We're all together in that as well. So if you have Christ, the bell does not toll for thee. And that's basically Paul's argument here in Romans 5, 12 through 21. He's saying in Adam, so, he's, so it's a great contrast between your humanity and Adam, how, you know, how you're alike him. You know, he died. He was a sinner and he died. And we all have, have that in common with him. But now in Christ we have, a, all, have something in common as well. We have life, eternal life in Christ, based on what Christ has done. And so that's what today's lesson is about. It's, uh, it's where we get the doctrine, or you may not have heard of this, but literally every church, doesn't matter what denomination, every church has the doctrine of what's called original sin. That if you, you know, if you're wondering, what was the, how did this all begin? You know, where did evil come from? Where did sin, where did death come from? It goes all the way back to Genesis 2 and 3, right? When God created us, created Adam and Eve, uh, they were perfect. There wasn't evil in the world. And so it goes all the way back to that original sin and what the consequences of that sin were. So uh, just like John Dunn said, uh, this is universal. Death is universal to the human race. Sin and our imperfections, you might say, are universal to the human race. And so therefore we know that death is, is probably the most obvious thing that proves that up, that we all have that in common because the consequence of sin is death and we're all going to die, therefore we all have that in common. But what event caused that? Uh, that's the original sin of Adam and how it affected the whole human race. Somebody might say, well, I shouldn't have to pay for what that guy did. How do you know that that's true? Prove it. Well, when you, as I said, you go back to the original creation and everything's perfect. As, as God made things, he says, it's good. It's just like I wanted it to be. It works. It's perfect. And when God made man, the last thing God made, he said, he didn't say it was good anymore. He said it was very good. Very good. Because we're told that we're made in God's image. In the image of God, we were made, all of us. And being made in God's image, that implies that we had a higher intelligence, higher intellect. Uh, we had the decision-making power and the communication that God gave us, just like himself, that's different from the rest of creation. And also, having that intellect and decision-making, God gave us, as part of being in his image, free will to make decisions, choices, see, that he didn't give the rest of creation. And so... That choice implied that to love God was our choice, or to not love God. And God made us to have a loving relationship with him. But he can't make us love him. So we had to have free will to have a loving relationship. So God didn't create evil, but he made it possible 
by giving us a free will. You see that? Having a free will, we could choose to reject. We could choose to be disobedient and rebel against him. The consequences of, of that is what you might call evil. Making that wrong decision is how evil came into the world, how sin came into the world, how death came into the world, the original sin. So when we say the doctrine of original sin, we're not only talking about that first sin, but we're also talking about that state of being that came into the world and infected, in a way, the entire human race. Uh, Paul's going to make the uh, case that just as the consequences of Adam's sin affected him with death and separation from God, that was passed down to all his descendants. He was the corporate or the federal head of the human race. It's just like if you buy stock in a public corporation, you are affected by whatever decisions the CEO makes, right? Like I owned a stock uh, last week, and a uh, true story, and they messed up the accounting when they reported the quarterly results, and the stock, when they had to go redo it and show lower earnings, guess what happened? <laughs> Feel sorry for me. Well, what happened? I was affected by what that guy did, see? And in the same way, we as a human, as a human race, just like John Dunn said in that point, we are affected, the whole human race is together in this area, in that we were all affected by the original sin, and the consequence of that came to all of us as well. That's his argument. And so God had said if you, to Adam and Eve, if you sin, if you disobey, you shall surely die. And one of the questions I get is, well, what is this whole deal about the, you can't eat the apple. It wasn't necessarily an apple. It was the forbidden fruit. Because what happened, they were created and they lived in where? The Garden of Eden, paradise. And it said there was vineyards and plants bearing every kind of fruit and trees with every kind of fruit. Just almost an infinite variety of all this great stuff. But God, you know, if you're going to, prove up love, if you're going to prove up this obedience or disobedience, what do you have to have? A test. There's got to be a choice. And so he said, now here's the deal. I'm going to have one tree here, and you can't eat the fruit of this tree. There's hundreds of thousands of other trees, and you can eat all the fruit of all those trees, but just leave this one alone. Because this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Meaning, if you eat this, you will have disobeyed, and for the first time ever, you'll understand what it's like to disobey your creator, to rebel against your creator. And if you disobey, you shall surely die. In other words, death will come in. And naturally, they... Satan convinced her that that wouldn't happen, and she wanted to know. He said, you know, don't you want to know what God knows? Don't you want to be like God? Yeah. Here you go. Eat up. 
And so they did. And immediately, everything changed. They had disobeyed. And the consequences of that disobedience is what today's uh, lesson in Romans 5 is all about. What happened as a result of that disobedience. You see the results in the very next story. That happened in Genesis 3. What happened in Genesis 4? What's the very next story? Cain and Abel. Who are Cain and Abel? They're sons. They're descendants. They're descendants. What happened in that story? Cain murdered Abel. So you see the presence of evil and sin, and you also see physical death for the first time. So what does he mean by you shall surely die? Number one, physical aging and physical death. But number two, separation from God. Cain was separated from God. Right there in the story, God says, you know, you disobey. You had every opportunity to do what's right, and you didn't do it. And so you have that separation from God, or you could call that spiritual death. So you had spiritual death, you had physical death, and then, of course, the prediction, the prophecy on uh, judgment in the future, so eternal destruction. Three kinds of death there is what happened because of the original sin. All right? Uh, so from that time on, uh, from Adam and Eve's original sin, and from that time on, the statistics on death, have been very impressive. <laughs> everybody, right? I mean, we have that in common with everybody, and that's what John Dunn was saying. No man is I, we all are in the same boat in this deal. Don't ask for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Without Christ, it tolls for thee, exactly. So therefore, Paul's argument will be that Christ also did something. That's what Adam did that affected the whole human race. So Paul's going to lay out, okay, that's what Adam did, and we're related to him that way. But what about Christ? How are we related to Christ? And what effect did his act have on the whole human race? Adam's act of sin had an effect on the human race. What did the act of Christ on the cross have to do with the whole human race, okay? That's the, that's the comparison, that's the contrast here in Romans chapter 5. So something happened from which Christ, when Christ died on the cross, that affected the whole human race, and it's, it's different from what Adam did, and it's much better, and it overcomes what Adam did. So you have to have it. So you've got uh, a contrast between the opposite acts of the two men, Adam and Christ. Opposite, they represent and give us choices, opposite choices. We can choose Adam or we can choose Christ in this sense. And the opposite consequences of either one of those choices. If you choose the way of Adam and continue in that sin, that original sin, then the consequences are eternal death. And if you choose Christ, it's eternal life. So again, the contrast, 
uh, Adam sinned, the fall of the human race, resulting in death and condemnation, but Christ, work on the cross, the atonement on the cross, resulted in redemption, eternal life, and our justification. And we were, if we're in Christ now, if you're a believer in Christ, you once were in Adam, but now we're in Christ, and everything's changed. So being in Adam is inalterable, cannot change, except through Christ. That's why there's just two choices, in him or in Christ. And the only way you can get away from that first one is to be in Christ. So Romans 5, verse 12, therefore, so the therefore connects it with everything he said before about the grace of God and how powerful it is and what it means to us and how we rejoice even in our sufferings because we have the grace of God, we have the peace of God in our hearts, even though we sin, we know we're forgiven. Even though we know we're going to die physically, we know we're going to have eternal life in Him. We're not really going to die. The Bible even expresses that by calling it, for a believer, it's just sleep. It's just as if you spend a period of time asleep and then the resurrection. Okay, so it's just a, a euphemism that way. Uh, so we find ourselves uh, with hope and we rejoice even if we have to go through the struggles and suffering and pain of this life now, we can overcome that, we can go past that. That's what uh, verse 1 through 11 is all about, is rejoicing even in the midst of the trouble. Why? Because of the grace of God. Because of what Christ has done for us, Christ is in our life, so we can live now, we can, we can overcome things now. Like look at verse 3, 5, 3. And not only this, we have hope, and not only this, but we also exult, we even rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. We know that God's working in our life even now. He's helping us persevere, overcome, grow up, maturity, and in that perseverance, proven character, maturity, and proven character gives hope. Right? I can, I can handle anything in Christ because I have hope for the future. And that hope does not disappoint because of what? The love of God is overpowering. You can't stop it. Love of God has been poured out within our hearts. How? You have the Holy Spirit. If you, you believe in Jesus, God has given you his spirit. You may not feel it. You may not even know that he's there. But he is. He's there. And if you allow him, he'll guide you, lead you, teach you, change your life. And verse 6, how did that love work? For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, but though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to, even to die, but we've already proven there aren't any of those. So what happened? Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he didn't wait for us to get good because that's not going to happen. He did something. He intervened. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so he accomplished for us, for us what we could not do ourselves. And so verse 9, 
much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, based on what he did. Okay, so 9, 10, 11, we exult, we're excited, we rejoice. That's what, in verse 12, that's what the therefore means. All these things are yours in Christ. He's done all this stuff for you and I. And therefore, just as, so like another example of what he's talking about is, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. That almost sounds kind of like a riddle. Let's see if we can unlock that riddle. Let's go back to the phrases. He says, sin entered. What sin is he talking about? Uh, no specific sin. He's talking about uh, that, that state of being, everyone becoming, being a sinner as a result of Adam's sin. When sin came in, it affected the entire human race. So the state of being is as a unrighteous, as a sinner. We have a propensity to sin. Say it however you want to say it. Water it down. It still comes out the same thing. And when he says death, we talked about this. Uh, death is definitely linked to sin. God said if you sin, you'll surely die. And so from the very beginning of sin, death came into the world and is true of all of the human race as well. And that's undeniable, obviously. But then he says that happened through one man. So Adam was, in that sense, as I said earlier, the corporate head or the federal head of the human race. He got this whole mess started, the whole disobedience thing started. And we, as his descendants, were affected by it as being part of him, right? And the idea of it entering, God had warned. Everything's perfect now, but if you do this, then it will enter. Death will enter. And so that's the idea. It's the consequence of what they did that entered. Because, you know, people go, how could God, I can't imagine how God, being holy and just and right, could have created evil. Well, God didn't create evil. Evil is not like something that's created, like this wood or this flesh. Or Evil is a consequence, is how you describe the consequence of sin. That's what happened as a result of it. And therefore what? It's all on us. People want to do just the opposite. People want to blame it on God. They want to say, how could God create evil? He did this. He messed up this world. No. We did. The whole human race. Again, we're just part of it, as John Dunn said. So it's on us, not on him. So it did enter uh, and as we said earlier, uh, you can look at what happened. Their bodies began to decay and physically die. They were separated from God, and then eventually uh, eternal death after physical death. All three, you see it there, all three of those in the lives in the story of Cain and Abel, the very first story after this happened. So verse 13 and 14, uh, he, he says, well, I know the law didn't come, until Moses. So what about the time period between Adam and Moses? Well, he said there was no written law 
you know, the Ten Commandments weren't given until later. So one of the ways you can prove that this death still affected and that everybody was a sinner is because even without the law, everybody still sinned and everybody still died. And so he says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. No, it's not explicit. It's, it's not in black and white. There's not a, a sign of it, right? Nevertheless, it was still there. Sin and death were still there from the very beginning, right after the original sin. And death reigned from Adam until Moses. The law came with Moses. Even over those who had not sinned in Adam, who had not, even, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And so 13 and, verse 13 and 14 there, uh, again, sounds a little bit like a riddle, but what he's saying is, uh, let me elaborate on the fact that it came into being at that time and continued from then on, even though there was no law there. If you remember the reason God gave the law, Paul tells you in Romans 3, uh, 20 and 21, you remember what, the, what it was? Why did God give the law if they couldn't keep it? He knew they wouldn't keep it. Why did he give it? So they could have God's perfect, holy, righteous standard. And so when they broke it, it was right there in black and white. <laughs> he, they couldn't say, I didn't do that. I didn't know. You know. So he gave it to actually reveal sin, reveal their weakness. And so uh, that, was, that was the reason God gave it during the time of Moses and, and through Moses, all right? Uh, and the entire race uh, shared in Adam's sin from the very beginning up through the time of the law and even until now. And as we said, you can prove this, you know, because somebody may say, well, I know a lot of good people. You know, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Everybody is, is, is under this curse. That just, that can't be because I know too many good people. Well, number one, the most obvious uh, thing you can prove it by is physical death. There was none before and there is now. And it, it applies to everybody. Secondly, it's in writing. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It includes everybody. Thirdly, by experience, your own experience, you know, that people just aren't perfect. They don't live up to God's standard. They don't, they don't keep his law perfectly, right? And so you see, even people you like, you can't help but see a, a greed or anger or envy or jealousy every now and then or a little a white lie here and there, selfishness of some kind. And then the fourth way you know is what I would call the empirical evidence. Like if you could go and do a scientific test, and they've done plenty of those, and guess what? The whole human race fails. You know, They have proven empirically that given the right motivation, should we say, everyone lies, everyone cheats. Now, we don't notice it with some because the degree of lying and cheating is so radically different. So some people just a little bit, and other people a lot, and some people it really takes a strong motivation, and others it doesn't take any at all. It just comes as a matter of everything they do. But still, the empirical evidence proves it. And it's like if you're playing backgammon and 
your opponent rolled double six 20 times in a row, he's cheating. <laughs> same thing with the human race. If it comes up the same way every time, that's the way it is. So he says now in verse 14, Adam is a type. What is a type? Well, a type is a foreshadow. It's, it looks like it has something in common with. So Adam is a type of Christ only in the sense that he is the head of the race, the human race, and what he did affected the human race. So Adam was a corporate head, and he did something that affected the whole race. Jesus was a head of the human race, and what he did affected the human race. Now, Adam's was negative and Jesus was positive, but that's how he's comparing the two, and that's what he means by a type of the human race. Uh, both men did uh, some, a great act. There were two great acts in history that both affected the human race. The act of rebellion of Adam, he rebelled and it affected everybody, and the act of the grace that Jesus, the atoning work of Christ on the cross came to us, that great act affected all of us as well. So in Adam we had the universality of sin and death and in Christ we have life and reconciliation with God and eternal life. Okay. Now here's the contrast in verse 15 through 19. He goes back and forth Adam this and Christ this. Adam in each verse. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take 15 through 19 and show you the progression of each. So I'm going to start out first um, with Adam. So verse 15 through 19, in verse 15 we see that by the transgression of the one Adam, many died. Here's the progression, verse 16. The judgment of all arose from that one transgression. Verse 17, by the transgression of the one Adam, death reigned. And then verse 18, through Adam's one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. And then verse 19, through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Okay? Now, let's look at what Christ did, also in each verse, as a contrast to everything Adam did. So verse 15, what do we see? The grace of God and the gift by the grace of God of the one man, Jesus, abound to the many. So it's for everybody. Verse 16, this free gift arose and resulted in justification. Adam's was condemnation, Jesus is justification. Verse 17, those who receive the grace of God and the gift of righteousness will reign with this one man, Jesus Christ. And in verse 18, through the one act of righteousness of Jesus, there resulted justification for all men. And then verse 19, through the obedience of the one, Christ, the many will be made righteous. He uses the same word. We were made sinners in a sense. But now in Christ, we are made righteous. So let's talk for a minute about our union, how important our union with Christ is and what that implies, what it means. What does it mean to be in Christ? Throughout the whole New Testament it says, those who are in Christ, we being in Christ, we are united with, it's over and over and over everywhere in every book of the New Testament. 
So what exactly uh, is going on there? Okay, we were born in Adam, so we started out just flesh and blood, just like him, uh, born united to Adam, born with Adam as our corporate head, you might say. But our relationship with Christ, our new relationship with Christ, required God's intervention. So at a point in time, maybe you were five years old, maybe you were 50, maybe you were 22, I don't know. But at a point in time, God knows, at a point in time, he intervened in our life and saved us, God's intervention, and he called, the Holy Spirit called us to come, in a sense. We had a hard heart, a closed heart, and somehow, mysteriously, I, I can't explain it perfectly, but God opened your heart to Christ when you believed. I can, I can remember it totally. I mean, I went from living 22 years without a single spiritual thought. Somebody start talking religion and I'd yawn and doze off. Not a single spiritual thought. And then for some reason I can't explain, people started talking to me about it from everywhere and, and I just kind of opened up to it and I started making sense. I started investigating. I mean, what happened? I thought I was pretty smart. We can rule that out. So God's spirit opened my heart to the truth. God intervened, and the Holy Spirit called me. And then it took an act of faith on my part. We do something. We, we have to step up in faith and belief and commit our lives to it. That's our part. And so all this happened uh, to be united with him, to be in Christ. That's basically the process. And the New Testament is full of images that reveal that union with Christ. I'm thinking in John 15, the vine and the branches. You've seen that? I'm the, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Where do branches go? They're plugged into the vine. They're in the vine, right? And being in the vine, they get everything they need from the vine. And they have this abiding relationship. And the power of Christ works through us, just like the fruit that's born by the branches on a vine. Second image uh, we see at the Lord's Supper. We partake. Uh, it symbolizes our participation in the life of Christ, his, his death. We partake the bread and the, and the grape juice or the wine or whatever it is you drink, and we're participating in that sense uh, with what he did. And we're thinking about it and it's ministering to us in the Lord's Supper. Thirdly, uh, we've got those images like in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Peter 2, Matthew 7, where Jesus is the foundation that we build our lives on. That gospel message that we believe is our foundation, and then we build a building, which is our life in Christ, on top of that. Great image of we're the building on his foundation. And then a fourth one is, we're told, that Jesus is the head of the church. The church is this gathering of people, the body of Christ, with Jesus as the head of it. He runs it. And then like that also in Ephesians 5, you see that union is likened to a marriage, the marriage of Christ and the church. 
we're brought together in that type of union, intimate relationship with Him. Uh, and so uh, we, we look at what, what Paul is trying to say then uh, in verse 18. It's kind of a beginning of a summary statement, Romans 5.18. So then, so because all this is true of us being in Christ and the results of it, the consequences of each, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification. So that's who we are now in Christ. We're justified in God's sight. He sees you and I in a, relation, a, a close, intimate relationship with Christ and we are justified. We are in Christ. He sees His Son there with us and we are reconciled to God. For as through the one man's disobedience, talking about Adam again, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And then verse 20 and 21, um, you have his conclusion to this chapter, and he adds the effect that law had on this whole process. Because Paul being Jewish, the law was huge to him. Uh, it made up his religion and his life beforehand, and he knew a lot of people uh, in the church there at Rome were also Jewish. And even those who are not, they were fully aware of the history of the Old Testament and the part that the law played. And so in verse 20 he says, And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Well, since he's already told us, well, two things about this concept of when the law came, transgression increased. Uh, one is that you're, recogni you're recognizing your transgressions increased. So when someone held up the Ten Commandments, it was almost like a mirror as you violated, you saw what you were doing wrong, whereas before you weren't even paying attention, right? So in that sense, you were made more aware of your sin, so it increased in that way. But not only that, as rebels, and that's what human beings are, they're, they're rebels. You're not thinking of yourself as rebel, but in a sense you are. In God's eyes, you were before Christ. So as rebels, what happens? Great true story. Uh, back last spring, walking through the park, Cruz Park. Remember how much it rained the end of last spring? Just pouring down every day. So finally got a nice day, and I took my dog for a walk. We were walking along the sidewalk. There were signs everywhere. Park, you know, field closed, too wet to play, you know, you know, signs everywhere. And I looked out on that wet field, and there was two kids' teams playing baseball with parental coaches, and they were using the signs as bases. First base was park closed, second base was don't come on field, third base was... And these adult men were standing right next to the signs, you know, that's it, good hit, run, you know. But also the idea that transgression might increase. Being rebels, it almost feels good to do that. They can't keep us out of this park. I pay my taxes. You, know, you can imagine the rationalization. Also, uh, 
you may not, you may or may not know this, but uh, prohibition. When they passed the law of prohibition, what was that, 1919 or 1920? When they passed prohibition, you know, no more alcohol. Drinking actually increased. <laughs> when alcohol became illegal, it became more popular. There must be something good about that stuff that we weren't aware of. So he's right. The law came in that the transgression might increase, but no matter how much it increased, what happened? Grace abounded. What Jesus did overcame it all. What he did was greater than what Adam did. And he overcame the consequences of what Adam did. Grace abounded all the more. And great story in conclusion, uh, how that's played out in history. It's one of my, I love history, and especially church history. And the, every church historian knows the story of Pelagius. You may not have ever heard this guy, but he's a, he was a famous theologian about 400 A.D. About 400 A.D., this guy named Pelagius was an ascetic monk, a super religious, by all accounts, an incredibly moral person, did everything by the book. Everybody respected him. And he came to Rome, and he saw the sin that was in Rome, just the gross immorality. And he blamed it on the doctrine that the church was teaching, the doctrine of salvation by grace, received by faith. He blamed it on that. He said, that doctrine's not true. You're saved by keeping the law. God would not give you this law unless he knew and expected you to keep it. That was his reasoning. And not only that, he said, I have kept the law from the very beginning. Yes, I'm perfect. That's what Pelagius said. They said, well, so you've never broken any laws? He said, no, and you shouldn't either. And we need to get rid of this doctrine of saved by grace. And he was a very popular after-dinner speaker, you know. <laughs> Not really, but. Uh, and so he came to northern Africa, was a big center of Christianity there in very North Africa. You had uh, towns like Alexandria uh, during that time, and uh, Carthage and Hippo. All of those were very large towns with large Christian churches. And there was a guy named Augustine famous theologian. And Augustine, because of this argument with Pelagius, was when he wrote up the doctrine of original, he was the first one to really write this up, what original sin was and what it meant, the consequences. And there, he wrote original, the doctrine of original sin, the doctrine of grace, doctrine of reception of grace by faith, etc. And so they were having this running battle kind of in the press, you know, in writing, and they finally had a personal showdown at a church council. They both presented their case, and uh, Pelagius was condemned as a heretic. And so he moved to Palestine, and of course he started the same thing there. No, you're saved by keeping the law. So they had another church council in 415, and then another one in 417, and each one Pelagius was convicted of heresy 
and, and kicked out of that particular church. Uh, here's the pro- problem for Pelagius, and I love this. You know the saying, uh, and, and this is true, 90%, 90% of all people admit to lying occasionally, and the other 10% are liars. In his testimony, he shaded the truth in order to try to win the case, and he got caught. Pelagius was a liar. I love it. (laughs) So the very guy that's standing up there saying, I'm righteous and I've never, he got caught. So just another example of everything that Paul's talking about here. Uh, we can praise God. We don't, we don't get bogged down in the fact that, like John Dunn said, that we're all, <laughs> we're all sinners and we're all going to die. We, that doesn't bother us because Christ has overcome all of that. In Christ, something greater has happened. You no longer have to worry about what Adam and Eve did or the consequences of it because now in Christ we have redemption, justification, eternal life, and all by the grace of God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word. Thank you for laying out so clearly, as Paul does in uh, chapter 5. And uh, we just praise you, Lord, and pray that you continue to convict us in our heart of the truth as we study your word and that would change our lives. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. <laughs>